0: you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, how many married couples would you guess sleep in separate beds? I bet you guessed wrong. Then understanding the fear
1: and anxiety of everyday life. The example I use usually is that if someone is pointing a gun at you, the experience you have is fear. But if somebody tells you there is a gunman on the loose in your neighborhood, the feeling you have is anxiety. You don't know exactly what you're afraid of. The object of fear is not right there. Here you worry about a lot of things that may go wrong. Also why
0: organic cookies taste better than regular cookies even when they don't. And how do dangerous chemicals end up in our products and our environment? So
2: you develop a new chemical to make a jacket waterproof, or you develop a new chemical to use as a lubricant or a solvent, and you can just put it out on the marketplace. And then it takes decades after scientists show a problem to get it off the market. All this
0: today on Something You Should Know. A shout-out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember... I have had to deal with seasonal allergies, stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird, and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin-D for years because, well, it just it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and Powerful Relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Boy, this is, this is surprising. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. Would you believe it if I told you that 25% of couples in the U.S. sleep in separate beds? According to research, sleeping separately does improve sleep quality and reduce stress, but sleeping together results in healthier and happier relationships. Snoring and conflicting sleep-wake schedules were the main reasons for sleeping apart, But interestingly, in the late 1800s, sleeping in separate beds was quite common and often recommended. There were books written by doctors saying that sleeping together was unhealthy. By the 1920s, twin beds were actually seen as the fashionable, modern choice for couples. Things changed after World War II, and twin beds fell out of fashion by the 1960s, and couples began sharing a bed, but still... A lot of couples prefer sleeping separately. And that is something you should know. I think it's safe to say that we live in a fearful culture. When you watch the news or read something online, it seems like there's a lot of things to be afraid of. And certainly, we have all experienced moments of real fear in life. When you stop and think about it, fear is a good thing, because if we weren't afraid of anything, we'd probably all be dead. You'll never know how many times your fear protected you because your fear prevented you from doing something that might have put you in danger. Fear keeps us alive. But a lot of fear seems irrational or overblown. So how do we better understand and get a handle on our own fear? Joining me to help with that is Dr. Arash Javanbach. He is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist who currently serves as the director of the Stress, Trauma, and Anxiety Research Clinic at Wayne State University. He's also author of a book called Afraid, Understanding the Purpose of Fear and Harnessing the Power of Anxiety. Hi, Arash. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thanks for having me, Mike. So fear is something humans, and I guess every other creature has... We know what fear feels like, but what is it exactly?
1: Fear is a reaction to an obvious threat. So if there is a lion attacking me, if a rock is falling over my head, I'm using these examples because these are examples related to the context and environment fear evolved in and the system evolved in. So in these situations, I have an object or situation right in front of me that is perceived as a threat by myself but then we have anxiety anxiety is more wider sense of apprehension and worry about something that might happen to us the example i use usual is that if someone is pointing a gun at you the experience you have is fear but if somebody tells you there is a gunman on the loose in your neighborhood the feeling you have is anxiety you don't know exactly what you're afraid of the t- object of fear is not right there But there is constant alertness and being on watch and looking for what might happen. A lot of people who have anxiety or anxiety disorders are dealing with this. You're not necessarily worried about one specific thing. Here you worry about a lot of things that may go wrong.
0: So I think everybody gets the idea that fear serves a purpose. If we didn't have fear, you know, we'd all be driving our cars off a cliff or, you know, running in front of a train. It wouldn't bother us. So fear keeps us alive. but So when is it a problem, and, and why is it a problem?
1: Absolutely. Excellent point. If we were not capable of experiencing fear, we would not exist as a species. We would all have been killed and, uh, by the nature or by other species or by our own competitors. So we do need fear. But the challenge is that this system evolved over a very long time to deal with the situations of its environment and our fear secretory has evolved to basically prepare us to the conditions of fight and flight back in the time fifty thousand years ago the threats were natural disasters falling rocks predators and other humans who were there to kill us but the confusion here is within the modern life environment because basically i say the software has evolved extremely fast and the hardware has not so we react to situations of perceived threat in the modern life, the way we would react to these situations 50,000 years ago. Example, let's say I am giving a public speech and I'm scared and I'm worried I may be judged and my heart is pounding in my throat and I'm short of breath and my hands are sweating and it is not helping me. It sounds stupid that the system which has evolved to help us and serve us is now working against us. But if you put it in the evolutionary perspective and context, it's less confusing. So 50,000 years ago, if I'm among my tribe mates and they don't like me, chances are high in a matter of minutes, one of us are dead or I'm exiled or seriously injured. So I need that fight and flight system to work. And that's the feeling we feel inside of our chest and inside of our guts and stomach.
0: Well, it does seem, I think anybody who would look back at the things that they have been afraid of or felt fear about or anxiety about in the last six months probably was unnecessary that it whatever it was never happened it didn't it wasn't a threat it was a just a perceived threat in your head
1: that's true that fear and anxiety mostly anticipatory anxiety is worse than what it really is. And a lot of us overshoot, especially more anxious people overshoot for threat detection. We have a tendency to catastrophize. Like right before this, I was talking to a friend who has a company with uh, like 30, 40 employees. And he's talking about some some challenges at work. And then he goes, well, at worst, I can have my own solo practice and work. Well, that was a big jump from going from uh, 30 employees to, oh, I will be able to function as one person after losing all of these. So we do overshoot and a lot of times I tell people, how about you look back and see on average in the past, every time you worried about something, how much you overshot compared to the reality of what you experienced. Then you can, we can use our cognitive brain to basically readjust that next time we are in a situation that we are worrying about. The other thing that fear and anxiety do is that, which is amazing about us, so we as a species are capable of reflecting on the past and planning for the future. But the problem is that even right now, our listeners are not 100% here. Part of their brain processing is in what happened earlier and in what's about to happen in a few minutes or a few hours or tomorrow, the meeting I'll have tomorrow, what I'm gonna have for dinner, when I go home, what challenge I will have. All of these things are constantly here and if if we were able to be exactly in here and now we would be a lot less stressed and a lot less anxious and if you wanted we can at some point have a two-minute practice of just doing that
0: of doing what of just being in the here and now
1: yeah i can guide a one-minute experiment between us and the audience if you want go ahead okay so i want you all to pay close attention just with the count of fingers or just tell me or yourself, how many sounds you're hearing at this very moment? Two. Two, how many colors, as many as they are, do you see around you in the room? Many, seven, eight. Seven, eight. And you can can count and focus more and more as much as possible because there are different shades even in the same object. Right. And then I want you to feel your shoes. Feel exactly every inch of the shoe. There are parts that the foot is touching the shoe. There are parts that are not touching. There are parts which are less comfortable. There are parts which are more comfortable. Same you can do with your sleeves, like sleeves of the shirt. People can feel every single inch of it. So during this time, could I confidently say, you were thinking less about past and the future Absolutely. I was thinking about what you told me to think about. This is exactly mindfulness. What, what I mean, to a lot of people, mindfulness is being with some candle and some weird music in the basement, but this is mindfulness. This is one of the ways we use and we can use, which is very against what's happening these days because these days you're constantly not here. You're, you're on your phone, you're on Instagram, you're on Facebook. 200 different contradicting and different subjects. In a matter of seconds, you're just scrolling down and up. But then with these experiences, we use our senses to come back to here and now, which is oftentimes the safest moment. And when we are not in there and then, which is just imaginations, life is a lot easier and less scary.
0: Is that beneficial though only for the few minutes I'm counting colors and feeling my shoes? Or does that have any kind of residual effect?
1: Excellent question. So it's a practice. The same way we build muscles in the arms and in the body with going to the gym, this kind of practice basically gradually teaches us to be here and now. And the more and the longer we can, we will basically be able to do it longer and more and gradually, first of all, it's a respite. If I can, that's a lot of activities we do that recharge our brains, right? I go to the uh, gym and I do go, go to a boxing gym, I hit the bag, not the people. that one hour that i'm hitting the bag i'm just right there because i cannot think about something else and it's very refreshing so mindfulness any mindful activity in that sense could basically be a reset for the mind basically takes us away for a second from all the worries and troubles and problems we are thinking about or we have made for ourselves in our minds but then also, when we do more and more and more and more and more of this, in the midst of the anxious moments and difficult situations, it's easier for us to come back to here and now. So it's a practice that we do to basically reset the system and be able to come to here, which is the only real moment in our life.
0: We're talking about fear and anxiety in everyday life, and we'll be talking about bravery, too, in just a few moments. My guest is Dr. Arash Javanbakht. He is a psychiatrist and author of the book Afraid – Understanding the Purpose of Fear and Harnessing the Power of Anxiety. Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit card you grab out of your wallet? Well, that that could be a costly move. NerdWallet – you've heard of NerdWallet – NerdWallet lets you compare credit cards side-by-side to maximize your spending – so, if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards. A free flight, room upgrades, who knows? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply So Arash, you know, I've I've always been fascinated by this idea and I understand why, but whenever there's something in the future that you're worried about, it's almost impossible to imagine it turning out well. You know, it's it's uh, it's always in the negative. It's like what if this goes wrong? Nobody ever sits around and thinks, what if this goes right? And I get why and we're wired that way, but wouldn't it be nice if we could say this is gonna be a piece of cake. This is gonna be great. This is gonna be the greatest thing that ever happened.
1: That will be very good. And that would be even better if we were able to be have an objective assessment of the threat. But like, think about it. why do we worry even about like jinxing things, right? You're like, oh, don't say all those good things about it. Even if you're not superstitious, you still have some worry in the back of your mind about it. And th- there's this other part. Oh, if I set myself for a lower level of expectations, so if bad things happen, then I'm not I'm prepared for them. It's as if there's somebody in my head who's sitting there as a very harsh judge that if I fail, I should be so prepared to explain to them why I failed.
0: There's also something about fear, though, that intrigue us. You know, we like movies that scare us. We like books that scare us. We like so th- we almost like go after it. We almost like pull it in because there's something about it. I, maybe it, it just feels good when it goes away after. I, I don't know. But w- what is that?
1: The same way our body needs to be active. We go to the gym, right? Because this body was designed not for sitting at the desk all day long. It was designed for other activities. We go to the gym and prepare it and we feel a lot better. I think our fear system also needs some good healthy exercise. We need some real fears. And the first time I thought of this was when I had my own experience of fear, a uh, big fear. I was uh, afraid of heights and I, not thinking well about it, plus signed up for a mule ride down the Grand Canyon. So I'm sitting on the mule next to this flat wall going down so deep and uh, terrified of course those few hours of ride down to the bottom of the canyon was basically helpful in overcome basically was exposure therapy for my fear of heights and i ended up being able to even uh do rolls in a fighter jet but the cool experience was after that for a few days i did not feel anxious i felt so calm Same, I was talking to my uh, boxing trainer, this guy fights, Reggie. And Reggie, I was asking him about his fights and how it feels. And one of the things he said was fighting feels as if he's alive, which I couldn't understand. This is another one of those real uh, mindful moments. But he also felt much less anxious the next few days after that. I think this, uh, when putting fear in real perspective, being exposed to what is really scary, allows us to put our false anxieties in perspective.
0: I've always thought my theory has always been that it's it's like safe fear. You know, when you go see a scary movie deep down inside, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. And yet so you get to exercise that feeling in complete safety.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you. Somebody chasing you with something looking like a knife in a haunted house is different than that happening on the street, on a dark street. And that is what matters here is the context. So contextually, we have a very contextual brain. Our brain is advanced to process the context and put cues in context. So that context allows you to know, as you said, you're safe, number one. Number two, you are in control. Sense of control is one of the most important things for reducing fear and anxiety. And there are many ways, I've talked about how we can basically use that sense of control to reduce anxiety. I mean, there are even researchers that where the same rats got the same number of shocks, two groups of rats, one group had a false perception that they are in charge of the shocks they get. They were less stressed. So absolutely, that feeling of safety. So you roll up the hand animal inside, but the human knows we are safe and we are in charge and can enjoy the ride.
0: So is the antidote to too much fear Bravery is the ability to feel that fear but, and do whatever you do with it and just move ahead anyway.
1: So bravery is a very complicated concept because it's like it has so many layers because what is perceived as bravery is an action that we see from outside. Let's say I'm highly trained at, I don't know, a SWAT team member who is highly trained in self-defense feels much less scared if someone is about to rob them than I am uh is that person more brave than me or is that person more trained and skilled than me or how we perceive the threat? an accurate threat perception is important in the sense of bravery if let's say i i don't know about snakes i see a snake i freak out someone else knows this snake is non-venomous because of that knowledge they look brave and they can go grab the snake uh but it could also be stupidity someone may have a very uh unrealistic th- uh, perception of threat and they act somehow that looks brave. But there's a, there's a point to what you mentioned. We say uh, fear and anxiety a lot of times is there. I mean, sometimes we cannot even eradicate it. We, I mean, we have a lot of advancements in our treatments and whether it's medications, therapies, technologies, we're using some advanced augmented reality technologies for that. And they help a lot. But sometimes at the end of the day, you cannot totally eradicate fear and anxiety, but you want the person to get to the point that they're able to perform and function ideally despite the face, in the face of the fear and anxiety. I mean, for a lot of people with anxiety disorders and illnesses, that's one part to learn through skills and coping skills and other abilities. But this is some, the effect of a life of people who are highly performing. I know someone who goes, a uh, very famous actor, actress, or singer who goes on the stage, or uh, the high performing athletes. They always have to deal with their anxieties and fears and still perform fully, ideally. And that actually is what determines a better professional from the professional which is less successful.
0: Very often, people who are perceived as brave said, I had no choice. That was the only, it was the right thing to do. And, you know, if somebody, if I'm holding my own child and someone tries to grab him at gunpoint, I'm going to do everything, I'm going to do things that people would perceive brave. I had no choice. What else was I going to do? Maybe it was brave, but it, it wasn't like there was another option. You do what you have to do and bravery is something other people say about you more than what you say, oh, I was, <laughs> I was so brave.
1: I work with uh, first responders a lot. What you said just reminded me of a story. I had a cop who basically, whose partner was shot in front of her, and it's just the two of them, and the gunman is coming towards them and shooting, and she's sitting there putting her hand on her partner's neck that is bleeding. To help him survive and that was a question i asked her i was like you didn't worry about your own life at that moment she exactly gave me the answer you gave you just said i had no other choice i did not think and i could not think of any other action at that time
0: is there something and there may be no answer to this but is there something like the next time i'm in one of those places where I'm really afraid, I have fear, that I can do in the moment like a first-aid thing to to turn the volume down on the fear.
1: Yes. One thing is to try to bring myself as much as I can to here and now, whether it's like counting colors around me, or writing something down, or engaging my cognitive brain, or joking about something, sense of humor. Bring me here, because being there in the la-la land of fear and anxiety, Number one, it makes it worse. Number two, it's not going to help. It reduces my ability to deal with the situation. Even seeking help from others. Others from outside can give you perspectives that can basically, both from a biological standpoint and cognitive standpoint, other humans are able to soothe each other. So we can use these resources.
0: Yeah, well, I've, I've always believed that, that, you know, fear grows exponentially in a vacuum. But when you get other people involved and talk about your fear with other people, they can help you put a better perspective on it. I've been speaking with Dr. Arash Javanbacht. He is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He is author of the book, Afraid, Understanding the Purpose of Fear and Harnessing the Power of Anxiety. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Arash. This was really interesting. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. It was an engaging conversation. You asked very thoughtful questions, and I really enjoyed it.
0: I think it's safe to say that when you hear the word chemicals, it probably doesn't make you feel all warm and fuzzy. That word has a reputation. Chemicals are bad, seems to be the general consensus. But the fact is, chemicals are a big part of life on Earth. They're not all bad, but certainly some are. And having a better understanding of what chemicals are, what they do can really help people feel better about them and get a sense of which ones to avoid and which ones not to worry so much about. Here to help with all of this is Frank von Hippel. He is a professor of ecotoxicology at Northern Arizona University and author of the book, The Chemical Age, How Chemistry Fought Famine and Disease, Killed Millions, and Changed Our Relationship with the Earth. Hey Frank, welcome to Something You Should Know.
2: Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. So, so it seems
0: like chemicals, chemistry, that's like the definition of a two-edged sword. Chemistry can be good and helpful, and it can be bad and dangerous. So first, the good. What is chemistry good at?
2: Well, chemistry has been used to solve major problems now for, for a few centuries. So uh, one way to think about it is to prevent famines. You can use chemistry to uh, kill plant pathogens like what destroy the potatoes in Ireland, you, you can use chemicals to destroy um, the vectors of disease like mosquitoes and, and um, body louse to prevent pandemics. But people also use these same types of chemicals to make chemical weapons. So there's been a lot of interplay between chemistry development for good, fighting famine and disease, and for evil, fighting people.
0: Well, I guess there's always going to be that. It's like, you know, you can use your powers for good or or evil, and the same can apply to chemicals.
2: Yeah, that's right. And one of the interesting things about the history of chemistry is it's often the same people doing both. Uh, So Fritz Haber, for example, is considered the father of chemical weapons because he deployed chemical weapons successfully for the first time on the battlefield at the beginning of World War I. But he's also the man who was the first to... Fix atmospheric nitrogen and make fertilizers, which probably saved millions of lives in the 20th century. So you have all these interesting characters who who were using chemistry for for both good and bad. And when you look at both sides of that equation, you've got good and bad, like
0: how are we doing? Do we are we leaning more towards the good, like we have things under control or not?
2: We really have things less under control. And the reason for that is the pace with which Humanity is creating new chemicals far outstrips our ability to understand their effects on the environment or human health. So we now know there's something like 350,000 man-made chemicals that have been released into the environment. And we understand the toxicology really well for maybe 10,000 of those. Uh, So probably the amount of new chemicals produced every year equals our total understanding of what these chemicals do to us and the environment. So in that sense, it's, it's getting worse. And, uh, and we really haven't figured out as a species how to live sustainably with chemistry, though there are a lot of good ideas on that front.
0: Well, there is in just kind of modern culture, it seems, when you talk about chemicals, there's a very negative connotation to that, that chemicals are bad somehow, that you should you should not, you know, the fewer chemicals in your life, the better, which isn't necessarily true, right? And not all chemicals are bad. Not all chemicals will kill you. Some of them just occur in nature. And, and it, chemicals have gotten a bad rap, it seems.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think a lot of people view it um, as a negative thing when we couldn't live without chemistry, um, but we also have to learn to live sustainably with chemistry. So I think the agricultural sector provides a good example of this because the chemicals that we've used to... Uh, kill the pests of agriculture have gotten a lot safer, but we also use far more of them than than we need to. And, and so we haven't really caught that balance, found that balance yet between what we need to do to use chemistry in a good way while avoiding the pitfalls of chemistry.
0: Well, one of the things I think, a very specific example of where people get confused about chemicals is You know, we hear that chemicals are used in agriculture and there's pesticides on our food and that you should buy organic, some people say, because then you'll get fewer pesticides. Is that true? Do you eat organic?
2: Yeah, so it's definitely healthier to eat organic food. It's better for you and it's better for the environment. But most of us can't afford to only buy organic because it's more expensive. And so typically what works best would be to allocate your Your budget um, to get organic foods where the pesticide residues are the highest. And you can look this up. There are groups like the Environmental Working Group that have have apps for your phone. They have documents online that will show you what the pesticide residues are for different foods. You might decide, okay, I'm going to buy organic uh, strawberries because the pesticide levels are high in those, but I'm not going to buy organic potatoes or whatever it might be. So, So just being able to make those informed decisions helps a lot. And one of the things that I really like about about thinking about pollution and thinking about chemicals is it's one of the major planetary issues that we can personally make a big difference on because what we decide to do, what we decide to use in our homes and our gardens, that can make a difference to our own health, the health of our neighbors and local wildlife. Whereas with many of the other problems like climate change, it can feel like, what could I do as a person that would make any difference? So with pollution, you can personally make a big difference.
0: But when you say that, you know, it's healthier to eat organic in some cases, because there have been studies to prove it? Because it seems there's also studies that say that it really doesn't make much difference in terms of the, you know, in terms of your health, in terms of your longevity, whether you do or don't. So when people use the word, it's healthier, by what standard?
2: That's a great question. So... Generally, these chemicals are most problematic for the baby in the womb and the and the and during early development, early childhood. And so that's the timing when you need to be most careful because a lot of these chemicals are so-called endocrine disrupting chemicals. They disrupt hormone function. And so when a child is undergoing rapid development in the womb and in early childhood, and they're exposed to high levels of pesticides and other chemicals, it can lead to late-onset diseases like cancer it can also lead to reduced fertility and other problems so for example in the industrialized world now men have about half the sperm count they had in the 1950s and that's thought to be due to exposure to all of these chemicals so it's definitely personal it's definitely healthier for you as a person but the way in which that those health effects are are expressed uh, is often has to do with early developmental exposure and later onset disease
0: are there any points in time in the development of chemicals as they interlace with our lives that have been like big like wow this is amazing or oh my god this is horrible or are have there been or is it more in incremental you know things come things go things change things don't
2: oh there's definitely big shifts and and so for example prior to World War II, most of the pesticides that were used to fight insect pests were metal or metalloid based pesticides, things like lead, mercury, um, and other toxic metals. And those were really quite dangerous because if you ate an apple that had been treated with lead arsenic, a lead arsenic combination, it could potentially kill you. So with World War II, we got the Origin of modern synthetic pesticides. Everyone's heard of DDT as an example of this, and those were much safer for consumers. So that would be one shift. And there have been other ones since then, but we made a we made a major shift to these organochlorine pesticides, beginning with World War II and going all the way into the 1980s. And and there, the problem was mostly environmental because they persist the environment for decades. So we switched to another category of pesticides called organophosphate pesticides. Where they break down much faster, so it's safer for consumers, but they're more dangerous for the farm workers to apply and there's been a number of these kinds of shifts as we've moved from one chemical class to another and how much does does
0: public opinion or you know political whatever sway the the argument here as to what's good, what's bad, what we should, or shouldn't do? I, I'm thinking you know the the DDT uh, issue you know back when rachel carson wrote her book and then you know malaria came roaring back and killed a lot of people and maybe maybe that wasn't such a great idea so it it seems like politics and and public influence gets mixed up in the soup here
2: oh absolutely and ddt is kind of the poster child for this because when it was first developed uh, during world war ii for use uh, it was it was a public health tool it was used to kill mosquitoes that vector malaria and yellow fever in the war theaters in, in South Pacific North African war theater. It was used by the U.S. military in Naples in December 1943 to February 1944 when we invaded, uh, took over Naples, and the people of Naples were facing a typhus outbreak, and typhus is, is a deadly disease vectored by the body louse. So it's really effective at and stopping those diseases in their tracks. That was the first time a typhus outbreak had ever been stopped and it was through DDT. If we had only just preserved DDT for public health emergencies like that, it would still be a wonderful tool today, but it's human nature not to do that. And so as soon as the war was over, we started using it in everything, in wallpaper for the nursery, in our paints, in our homes, in, um, in theaters. So you wouldn't have to be bothered by flies when you're watching a concert in airplanes just overused everywhere. And because it was used so much, the pest quickly evolved resistance to it, so it became ineffective. So that, that's kind of a good theme to the whole story of chemistry because these, chemi- these chemicals like DDT can be wonderful tools, but not when they're overused. Well, and talk about
0: that idea of no matter what chemicals you use, whatever you're trying to get rid of can develop resistance to it. And over time... You know, we hear, we hear about that with antibiotics and other things that, 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 that it's, a, it's a moving picture. It's not a static, oh, we, we solve this problem.
2: That's exactly right. The antibiotic story is a great parallel for this because it works the same way with pesticides. So with DDT, for example, once it went into heavy use in the decade after World War II, all over the world the insects that were targeted with it evolved resistance in two or three years, and then it was no longer very effective.
0: It's like everything in life. You know, you have a pesticide, you have a chemical that will do this, but there's likely side effects on the other side of the scale that, you know, it's nothing is ever, it's like medication, you know. Yeah, it'll help, but it may also cause this other problem. It's It's always a balance.
2: That's exactly right. And in terms of the politics of it, We unfortunately have our politics pretty much backwards on chemicals policy, because if you wanted to develop a new drug, and it's the the Mike Carruthers new medicine for whatever disease, you would have to go through clinical trials to prove that that drug is safe and efficacious. But that's not the way it works with chemicals. So companies can introduce new chemicals to the market, and then we as consumers have to prove they're unsafe to get them off the market. And if we just reversed it and made it the same as drug development, then we could have a much more sustainable process that where we're not constantly overusing and polluting polluting everything. I mean, I think most people are now familiar with PFAS chemicals polluting our water supplies all over the country. And and that's another example of the same problem. But wait, wait, uh, uh
0: a company can just create or f- find and distribute a chemical and then wait until somebody says this is wrong? Or there must there must be some sort of approval process before you put out a new pesticide or something?
2: Yeah, for pesticides, there is an approval process. Um, and um, that approval process does not prevent dangerous pesticides from being used. They just have to show in a cost-benefit analysis that that according to the current rules, this is this is worthwhile. But just as an example, down on the Arizona-Mexico border, on the US side of the border, we use 240 different pesticides in year-round agriculture. And a quarter of those pesticides are considered hazardous in terms of being carcinogenic or disrupting development. So we have many of these that are that are quite dangerous, that go on the market anyway, and it's known they're dangerous. But the bigger problem is that We have tens of thousands of new chemicals being developed for other purposes that don't have to go through any kind of safety uh, testing at all. So you develop a new chemical to make a jacket waterproof, or you develop a, a new chemical to use as a lubricant or a solvent, and you can just put it out on the marketplace. And then it takes decades after scientists show a problem to get it off the market
0: that that surprises me not 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 that it, you know using it in a, on a jacket i mean that seems pretty benign but the, but how it got to the point of being able to use it on the jacket without being you know stopped somewhere along the the process and saying wait wait, wait what is this wait we can't we can't be doing this
2: yeah i think pfas those are the per and polyfluoroalkyl substances are a great example of this very problem these are the chemicals that were developed for having waterproof materials uh, like Gore-Tex jackets, um, Guard that you might put on your car seat, and, and a variety of other, uh, other coatings to make things waterproof. It turns out there's more than 10,000 chemicals in this family of chemicals, and we understand the toxicology really well for four of those, and a few others we understand a bit about them. Most of them, we know almost nothing about them. And they were all introduced into the marketplace without any testing of their toxic of their toxicity. So that's just the norm when it comes to chemical development.
0: Is there ever been or is there now some chemical that that really has like lived up to the promise? It really isn't that is dangerous and and it really does do what it says. And it really this is like kind of a new era of chemicals or is it always been problems and benefits?
2: Well, so we have, as I mentioned, something like 350,000 man-made chemicals that are are in the environment. Probably most of those are not a problem for the environment and not a problem for human health, but many thousands of them are, including uh, many that are probably quite a problem that we haven't yet discovered. The history of science is all about these accidental discoveries that end up being a big deal. So you could just think about stratospheric ozone depletion as an example of this, where where the uh, chlorofluorocarbons, the CFCs, were developed to be refrigerants and propellants, and they were developed as a safer alternative because before Thomas Midgley Jr. developed the first one, Freon, lots of people were dying in explosions of of um, air conditioned units or, or or refrigerators, and Freon was so safe and inert that that never happened. So it seemed like this wonderful new invention with with no problems, no one anticipated that it would destroy ozone in the stratosphere that protects life on Earth from dangerous ultraviolet radiation. So those kinds of, of unintended consequences of chemical development are the norm. There's so many of these. And uh, who knows what damage is happening for all the new chemicals coming out now. And that's why we really need to have a precautionary principle like with drugs of first doing the testing and then allowing the, the marketing.
0: The problems that you point out are they are they problems with the system? Are they problems with the government? Are they problems because people
2: are being devious? I mean, what what is the problem? So there's some of all of that, but it's mostly the problem with the system. So another great example of this in the history of chemistry, I mentioned that Thomas Midgley Jr. developed Freon. Another thing that he developed was tetraethyl gasoline. And he was trying to solve the problem of knocking in internal combustion engines and discovered that if he added tetraethyl lead to gasoline, marketed as ethyl gasoline, that it greatly increased the performance of cars. Well, in the development of that gasoline, a number of workers got lead poisoning. So they knew that lead was toxic at the time, but they thought that it was worth the benefit in terms of increased performance in automobiles. And so then we went through nearly It was about 70 years of use of leaded gasoline that created tremendous levels of lead pollution in the atmosphere. And lead, unfortunately, leads to irreversible declines in in intelligence and cognition uh, when children are exposed to it. So we had several generations who were exposed to high levels of lead and all of the consequences of that for a chemical that was known to be toxic at the time it was produced, but there was so much money in it that it all went forward anyway. And uh, so that that's one side. But on the system side, it's also this this having the chemicals policy be backwards is is really the system level at which it's a problem. So all of those things occur. And um, and and whether it's a system or just profit motive, they all lead to unsustainable chemicals policy.
0: Well, it's certainly an important topic and one that everyone really has a stake in because we're all exposed to chemicals everywhere we go. And it's it's good to get an understanding of what they are and and what's going on. I've been speaking with Frank von Hippel. He is a professor of ecotoxicology at Northern Arizona University and author of the book, The Chemical Age, How Chemists Fought Famine and Disease, Killed Millions, and Changed Our Relationship with the Earth. There's a link to that book in the show notes. Appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks so much, Mike. I've really enjoyed this.
0: Since we were just talking about chemicals and organic food with Frank von Hippel a minute ago, I thought this was interesting. Do you know that organic cookies, organic cookies taste better than regular ones even if they really don't taste better? A study found that people perceive food as tastier if they're told it's organic or if it includes organic ingredients. The same trick works for other descriptive words like farm-raised, locally-grown, all-natural. Experts call this the health halo effect. People tend to assume that food is better for them, more pure, and tastes better if it has fancy adjectives that make it sound all-natural. And that is something you should know. You know, if you hear an advertiser on this podcast and what, what they're selling sounds interesting to you, Typically, there is a link to that advertiser in the show notes for whatever episode you hear it in. And I hope you'll check them out. We love our advertisers. We vet them all. And they're good folks with good products, and they keep this podcast going. So please do business with them, and, and I'd appreciate it. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know